Hi, David. Hi, Alex. How are you doing today? I'm great. Nice to be here. Good to have you here. So before we get into the interviews that you did at our National Agri-Food Forum last week, and before we even get into talking about the project, the the, the why we did the Canada Food Brand Project, I want to ask you like a, a really big question that I hope situates our listeners in where this sector is right now in 2019. So uh, the snow has just fallen in Ottawa. It's uh, November 2019. Where is Canada's agri-food sector right now? How is it doing? What's the path that it's on? Give me a bit of a temperature check for agriculture and agri-food in Canada right now. That's a great question, Alex. Agriculture and food has been is and will be one of the most important sectors in the Canadian economy. And I say that not only because I'm passionate about the sector, but it employs one in eight Canadians. That's a huge number. It's relevant in rural and urban Canada alike. It's not focused in one region. It's not focused in one city. Uh, The activity of the food sector is across the country, coast to coast to coast. Did you know, Alex, that more people are employed in food processing than in the automotive and aerospace sectors combined? It's huge. See, I didn't know that, but maybe this is just me trying to feel better about myself, but I suspect I'm not alone. I suspect that a lot of Canadians, despite the fact that it employs one in eight Canadians working in this space, we tend not to think about the agriculture and agri-food space in Canada as what you have termed it throughout the course of this project as a super sector. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's an historic reason. We think of the farms and uh, the nice picture of the red barn uh, that connotes this notion of, of a good feeling of rural Canada. Uh, this is an innovation powerhouse It deploys science and technology to ensure that the food that we put on our plates every day are safe, sustainable, reliably supplied, taste great, high quality, uh, nutritious. Putting that package together requires tremendous amount of, of, of good regulation, of great collaboration, and science. And this is a, this is a technology sector. Um, and I don't think people fully appreciate just how much of a sector this is an, an advanced in that technology and science space. Help me situate Canada globally. I, I like to think in terms of comparisons. I think we often like to benchmark ourselves against other countries. Um, we've generally had this idea in our head that maybe we're, you know, the breadbasket of the world. Where does Canada sit globally as it compares to other agricultural powerhouses around the world? Well, Canada is a player in in a lot of food types. So if you think of canola or you think of uh, ice wine or maple syrup or lobster or pulses, that is lentils and so forth, uh, we are a major player in those specific commodities. Um, And actually, that speaks to the familiarity with when we think of Canadian food, we sort of fall back to those things that uh, where people might think of Canada. Um, 
But we actually are quite a player in a number of other respects. We're a major ingredient supplier. Uh, we're in the top, I, I believe, the top five exporter of agricultural products. For processed foods, it's less so. And there's been a lot of work done in the last several years to try to um, push Canada and uh, set targets to, uh, to, to, to do more in order to grow the business sector across the country, the farm and agriculture sector across the country. So while we're a major player, one of the challenges we have is because we're not number one, two, or three, um, we don't pack as much a punch as, as what we could. So that's where we have to step up. So you mentioned maple syrup and ice wine, and I'm thinking of other sort of traditional, quote-unquote traditional Canadian food uh, items that all support the idea of what I have in my head of like, yeah, this is what our food brand is. And what was really, really interesting was that was the framing for a project that you brought to Canada 2020, well over a year ago now. You said, I have this idea to do a project about Canada's food brand. And I said, well, was it about like marketing or a tagline or just telling Canada's story better? And you said, it's way bigger than that. And so I was hoping that you might be able to sort of chart the course of what you've been doing with Canada 2020 for the over uh, the past year and how that leads us to the forum and the interviews that our listeners are about to hear. Thanks, Alex. There really are two big pieces to this. And uh, there's the process and the plan, I guess, which I'd like to come back to. But the first is I want to come back to the maple syrup, ice wine, uh, pulses comment. Because when people think of Canadian food and what our advantages are, we naturally fall back into something which is recognized. The, the opportunity, though, is at the marketplace here and abroad, uh, the investor, the consumer, the customer, they're transforming how they and how you and I think about food. We don't think in terms of maple syrup or canola. We think in terms of safe, sustainable, high quality, nutritious, reliable, uh, the, uh, the best food around. And we're going out to restaurants and filling our shopping carts with that in mind. And so this is the real opportunity for Canada is, and this is the brand promise, is that as we feel these tremendous stresses around the world, around how we grow our food, where does it come from? Does it cause harm to the environment or people or animals? How are we really demonstrating quality and trust? This is the brand promise that Canada can win on in a world that's increasingly uncertain. So we stepped back, you and I, Alex, about a year, over a year ago, and we said, what can we do with this? And can we time this so it's a relevant discussion in the days and weeks right after the federal election, of which just occurred? Can we, can we create a national dialogue, setting this up, getting some input and feedback, and can we set up a priority action list, an action plan to take forward and be relevant for the next policy agenda? Importantly, this is not about what government can do. They're a player. It's about what the food system can do. And so we've embarked on that process. So talk our listeners through what that process has looked like because this hasn't just been you in a, a dingy office with your laptop. You have convened dialogues across the country. We, we've been to cities and places where, you know, remote rural spots, we've been to, you know, dense urban hubs, 
all having conversations about that food system and the ways in which it supports Canada's food brand. Um, Walk me through that process, starting first with uh, the conversation that we had uh, just after an event that we did with Dominic Barton. Well, Dominic is uh, is an incredible, passionate uh, advocate for Canada's agriculture and food sector, and uh, and he sees our potential as a country. And so we lifted lifted off of his vision, essentially, about Canada, quite frankly, being one of the most trusted, most sustainable, safe food systems on the planet. And so the ambition is clear, and most people can get their heads around that question really is how. How do we deliver on it with such a sector that's so vast? And so uh, that's where the conversation started around what can we do, what can Canada 2020 do uh, to tee this up for the next agenda? Um, so what we ended up doing is we, we, we really started with, with that as a question. We also asked another question. Can we rally the sector which is very diverse. I mean, we're talking large retail, multinational processors, small scale, upstart local, uh, beef to blueberries, and everything in between. How do you rally a sector around a common action plan that's going to make uh, create jobs, create wealth, and improve the well-being of people in society? That's the tick big ticket item. But the question actually is so powerful because of its simplicity. What actually stands behind Canada's brand? And can we leverage that and rally everyone around it so that we can improve how we compete, how we regulate, how we collaborate? So we say we are, we're a safe and sustainable system, food system. How do we know? How do we know and how do we leverage that to, to create a plan? So we basically have, uh, you know, maybe I, I poke fun at myself at thinking in threes, but we have a three-phase process. <laughs> uh, we started out with a series of dialogues across the country. We reached out to well over 300 agri-food stakers in the places that you mentioned across the country, rural and urban Canada alike. Um, then we synthesized those ideas, gelled it together as much as we could, and that helped to frame up the national form that just occurred uh, in early November, phase two, uh, where we brought another couple hundred people, in fact, well over that, to, to Ottawa to further explore. And we had some speakers from abroad who helped challenge our thinking. People from Ireland, people Australia. People from Ireland, Australia, yeah. the United States, uh, and international global institutions. And then that's going to lead to the third phase, which is how do we gel this and put it together in, in as succinct fashion as possible so that this becomes a bit of an action plan, we hope and aspire to, uh, that it actually can bring people together to focus on the what has to happen going forward. So the the hosting duties for this episode are actually, they, they fell to you. So uh, our listeners are about to hear a series of interviews that you did at the National Forum, which took place last week. And I'm wondering just before we throw to them, is there anything that you have reflected on over the past week since the ending of the forum that you know, united the conversations that you had or really stuck out as a common theme as this sector came together, which, and by the way, I, I, you, 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 you've mentioned this, but I want to stress this, doesn't happen very often for this sector as big and diverse and, um, and often sometimes a little tribal as it can be. So what were some uniting themes from your interviews? Well, we brought uh, 40 people together, uh, speakers from here and abroad and moderators to help 
uh, gel this conversation. So that, that, that's a lot of people. But nevertheless, um, w- what was common and what struck me was that while there are differences about the speed with which we need to transform our food system, we had social advocates, we had those who are passionate about food security and the vulnerable in our society. Uh, Then we also had many who were passionate about competitiveness and the need to attract investment and the need to step up as a country in that way. That's a lot of space. But what was common was that Canada has a tremendous opportunity and it's how we work differently together that is really going to be the key, I believe, to how we can move forward as a country and create that opportunity to be that preeminent supplier of trusted, safe, sustainable food. So if people want to read all of this amazing work that you have done with Canada 2020 and keep up to date with the uh, outputs that are going to be produced over the next you know few weeks and also beyond, we don't know what the next phase of this might look like, where can they find that? Well, the Canada 2020 website has, a, has a, a, a section devoted to the Canada Food Brand Project. It includes some notes from the labs, what we did over uh, late 2018 and over 2019. Um, there's the so-called synthesis report. We tried to bring all those labs together in a few pages. And we'll also have our final work for the, the National Forum coming out in a few weeks. Uh, and it's all on the Canada Food Brand website. So the next voice you are going to hear is David McGuinness with uh, his headphones on in uh, the ballroom of the Chateau Laurier uh, doing your best uh, Ira Glass uh, NPR podcasting impression. Um, David, thanks very much for joining me in the studio today, and I hope uh, our listeners enjoy the interviews that you've done. Thanks very much. JP, thanks for uh, being with us uh, this morning uh, for the National Forum on Agri-Food. You talked about uh, uh, Aboriginal entrepreneurs, and there were thousands across the country, and what we can learn from that. So two questions. Uh, What can we do to learn from uh, First Nations entrepreneurs and uh, to sort of inspire others in society? And what's holding back those entrepreneurs in uh, across First Nations? That's a, that's a great, great question, David. And so our entrepreneurs are First Nations, Inuit, and Métis, and they are. There are 50,000-plus operating pretty much in every sector. I think what one of the most uh, fascinating things I think that separates an Indigenous entrepreneur, uh, actually there's a couple things, is connection to, to a long-standing history in this country that far exceeds the, the last 150-plus years since Canada has been around, and the connection to the land and knowledge systems where Canada's first uh, entrepreneurs um, so there's that, that strong connection, but also strong connection to community. And a lot of that, I think, has been born out of necessity. Uh, when you've been pushed as a society or as a segment of, of a population to the peripherals of society, you, you rely on your community. And then I, I see so many Indigenous entrepreneurs as they become more successful, and some of them are doing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Um, the give back to community is something that you don't witness every day, like right back to community. We're the strongest employers of our own people. Um, let me use an example, a Jen Harper who does cheekbone beauty of the lipstick. You know, she's exporting that across the world and she gives a certain percentage of back, maybe more kind of a food products. You know, we've got Birchbark Coffee and his company, Mark. 
you know, every 30 bags, he gives back a, a water purification system back to the community. So there's this really strong connection. And I guess the last thing that I, and given, given, you know, the work that you're doing here at Canada 2020, David, with regards to building more of a robust conversation and more inclusivity and more diversity, building on that knowledge system back in, in, in our connection to the land, bringing that knowledge system, that traditional ecological knowledge as it's sometimes known, to the forefront as we make decisions together as a country. And not being separate from it or outside of it, but actually being integrated in, and integrated is a very sensitive word in our communities, but being part of a process that is reflective of our governance as well as our knowledge systems to advance Canada's competitiveness. So we, we, we throw around the words a collaboration a lot, <clears throat> I think in every sector, uh, and we all want to collaborate better we are, or more. Uh, but is there not a stronger term here? Uh, so collaboration is good, but how do we more systematically bring First Nations into those dialogues? You also mentioned governance. Are we talking about boards of directors and leadership positions, or is there a, a different term? What I'm trying to get at is how do we more systematically engage these discussions and relationships? Because we I, use collaboration a lot. Yeah, maybe the word that we're looking for is empowerment. We were once uh, a trading nation that relied on Indigenous people, and it's really important to reflect on our history. We were Canada's first entrepreneurs. We had trading systems even before the newcomers came, and that relationship was based on respect and reciprocity. So empowerment of that base, again, into a modern context is really important. And when we talk about governance, yes, absolutely. You know, I sit on a couple of boards, Ontario Power Generation, Norant, the mining company, and having that knowledge system at the highest level of an organization directing strategy and working with the CEO and the executive team is really important to have that mindset and that perspective at that table, but also governance from an understanding that the governance systems traditionally with our communities were largely um, supported by our women. Our women played such an integral role in our communities. And we know in society today, when you have more women on your boards or more women leadership in your organization, you're a stronger organization because of it. And recognizing that governance system and, 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 and the importance of actually having all parts of an indigenous society at the table at all governance levels, whether that's provincial, municipal, territorial, federal, uh, and corporate. Uh, having those governance systems recognized uh, for each of their strengths, I think, only uh, bolsters our competitiveness in this country. So there's a lot to do, uh, but last question, uh, maybe there's something that will galvanize the different communities across the country, uh, First Nations and, and others, but also with, within Canadian societies as a whole. Maybe there's something that's actually going to drive us a little closer, and that is around sustainability. We're all seeing uh, at different stresses around in production of food and in supplying food, but also in our lives generally. Is sustainability, environmental sustainability, going to uh, push, drive, and send us to work differently together? Absolutely. I think Indigenous people are often seen as the keepers of the land, keepers of the water, keepers of, uh, of, of well, to the extent that we can, the air. Um, and having that, uh, that, that seven generational thinking, this long-term thinking about uh, how we relate to our land and, and our water and our air is going to be really important. And I'm not saying for a second do we stop um, doing the things that makes Canada strong. We are a natural resource rich country. 
and we're, we've been endowed with that, but we also have a big responsibility. And I think the responsibility of this country that's going to galvanize us together is drawing from that knowledge system and, and mutual respect for each other. And it's, you know, we're very much a divided country these days and on a lot of issues. And, and I think what binds us is our history, and I think what binds us um, is, is the indigenous population. I mean, been here a very long time. So, so being, bringing that to the forefront, again, with the original uh, area or the original intent in which we worked was mutually respectful and where we all benefit is going to, I think, help elevate our country. JB, thank you for coming today to the National Forum. Uh, you helped kick off a super dialogue. We still got a lot more to go. We do. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks very much again. Thanks a lot, Dave. Really appreciate it. Tanya. Thank you for participating in the National Forum in Agri-Food. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And you moderated a panel of very diverse stakeholders without naming names. Who was generally at your table? We had um, definitely some amazing leading Canadian technologists. We had academics. We had um, people from a beef industry, people from dairy, people from produce and grain. Uh, it was very diverse as well as associations represented from across the country. That's great and, and it, that was playing out in, among all the, the, the breakout groups. Um, at the forum what we're trying to do is get some insights on how we enable Canada's food ambition. Um, what's something that you've observed? What's happening? What's the dialogue about? I have to tell you, I am so delighted by what I've observed. Um, there's a hunger amongst this group to innovate forward. There is an appetite to succeed globally. It's not just a, a humble domestic objective. There are there's some very serious global ambitions in the room. And there's a desire to learn more and to be supported. Um, there are some tough conversations to have. They're, they're new conversations. Certainly, as you know, from my perspective on, on blockchain, even speaking the word blockchain, I think I've educated a number of people in the room on what that means, but they're interested, they're curious. So let's let me pick up on blockchain or, and other technologies. Uh, you know, we think of the consumer mistrust in the marketplace um, and often issues these days about food are about what the consumer wants, what the consumer needs and, and how the businesses are delivering or not to them. Um, but let's think of technology from how does this enable productivity? Uh, for producers and the supply chain players. Definitely, we're, we're at the building stage for innovation uh, and technology, deeper technologies being embedded into the, the agriculture system in Canada. So it's still pretty early. Um, as with anything, cost is high to do implementation. So there's a lot of weighing out of factors right now, it sounds like. So, you know, do we invest the money in this technology or that technology, which we are told will give us more data that will help us drive efficiency. Certainly we heard uh, from Brandon at FarmLead and he was saying, you know, he, he had a bet with his uncle and he said, well, I'll prove to you that if I can collect more data, we'll be able to improve efficiency and improve our bottom line. And he won his bet. Um, and so more, more sharing of those use cases is really important because we aren't going to be able to predict today the return on investment of the technology. But that said, Globally, there's investment in technology. So is this the path to demonstrate that trust in the marketplace by linking productivity gains for the producer, uh, how they manage their inputs in water and carbon, 
uh, to better returns and demonstrating sustainability. Is that a pathway to improving trust? Yeah, I think the trust piece is really interesting. It's difficult to improve trust because there's trust, the feeling that you and I have when we talk to each other. And I believe you because I respect you because you're an expert. And then there's just marketplace trust or mistrust. And what does that actually mean? Oftentimes, that's actually an embedded concern that there isn't enough information available. So blockchain can definitely be one of the technologies that brings forward, you know, the information around sustainability or ESG or, you know, the provenance of a product product and you know the story around who made that product and what farm did it come from those are all pieces that consumers want to know that may or may not be standards related and they may or may not be regulation related but they are pieces of information that the consumers want to know and at various points in the supply chain pressure will be put to provide those answers well when i have my lunch or dinner when you have your breakfast lunch and uh it seems so simple we have wonderful safe uh, fresh and, and good food in front of us, but there's a massive amount of complexity sitting underneath that plate. Thank you for taking time with us and helping to advance the dialogue and uh, good luck with your efforts. Oh, thank you, David, so much. It's an honor. This is an important conversation. So Priya, thanks for being part of the National Forum in Agri-Food here in Ottawa uh, and on the panel this morning. Um, there's a lot of discussion around risk and what global, uh, what, what's happening globally, how are agri-food uh, uh, economies responding? You listed four. Um, in your mind, after you've reflected on what the panel said, what is truly the number one risk for agriculture to succeed in the future? I would say the big, biggest risk is making sure to see the forest for the trees in terms of planning and not getting focused on just one of the risk areas. Um, it's very easy to view one issue as being the big issue that everyone needs to pay attention to. Um, but the truth of the matter is that agriculture is one of those multifaceted issues that you kind of have to pay attention to everything. So in your work, uh, the Economist Intelligence Unit, you develop uh, benchmarks and assessments around global food security or sustainability. Are you trying to say then that the approach you're taking at the EIU is to blend the analysis into a benchmark or a series of benchmarks that will help digest some of this. Because the, we're facing trade risk, uh, social risk, uh, uh, climate change risk, uh, let's, the list does go on. So is, are these tools by which we can take uh, to diagnose and, and to have different conversations? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that looking at the macro level, all of these issues apply, but within each country, there are clearly going to be different areas where they need more attention or more investment. Um, so these types of tools are really helpful for identifying how Canada um, is positioned vis-a-vis -vis other countries and what are the areas that Canada specifically needs to pay attention to. So for example, Canada, I would say, does not have as much of an issue with ensuring there is sufficient domestic supply for food. So that aspect of food security tends not to be one that Canada needs to worry about as much, while other countries, it is absolutely the number one issue. Speaking of these, some of these benchmarks, so where does Canada fall short? I would say for Canada, one of the areas where um, which has actually been flagged in the index as one of the areas where there could be room for improvement is on those trade barriers. So the taxation and trade barriers um, in terms of agricultural products is one of the few areas where Canada scores a little bit lower than other countries. One of the things that you said um, <clears throat> that I'd like to come back to, and is actually, I think in response to a question, uh, was, 
and again, this might be a universal comment, not just related to Canada, but how do we uh, become a trusted source of information? And I thought that phrase was really interesting because we can have a trusted food system, we can have a, a trusted sustainability uh, program system, we can have a safe food system, but you said a trusted source of information. What were you getting at? So when it comes to food, I think we've talked a lot about today about how food is more than just an economic issue. It's more than just a um, source of sustenance. It is a part of culture. It is a part of beliefs. It is a part of our preferences. And so when we talk about food, uh, there's a lot of information out there. And it, this is not something that's just related to food and agriculture. We, have, we are living in a world where there is just a complete... Uh, abundance and overwhelming amount of information that exists. And so in order for consumers to become curators of what to believe and what not to believe when there are six sources that are supposedly trustworthy telling them different things, they have to make decisions about who they trust. And that, el that uh, element of trust is really what helps people decide which sources of information that they're going to go to and which ones they don't. Um, and oftentimes that source of, of trust is someone who they know. So you, I think I was talking to someone about this, about how we've all had that conversation with someone um, where we're talking about an area that we're very knowledgeable about, we're trained in it, and they say, okay, sure, I believe you, but my neighbor said this, and I've known him my whole life, and he's a very smart man, so I'm going to pay attention to that versus what you say. And building up that element of trust means that there has to be a lot of investment in the messaging and also ensuring that you are a credible source of information. And in each country, that can be a different thing. It can be the national government in countries where the national government is a, source of, is a trusted source of information. And for others, it could be a matter of reaching out to partners and bringing them into the conversation so that they can go and become these message ambassadors. The final question for you, when we think of, of delivering that information <clears throat> and being that trusted source, um, are there certain benchmarks that come to mind for you uh, from your look of how things have been unfolding around the world that we need to pay attention to? What, what and there could be all numbers of benchmarks, but are there any that leap to mind that might be important for us to keep in mind? So two examples I can think of. Um, one was in the Ebola crisis. Um, I believe it was Merck, um, as, who was the company that was selected by the government to be the distributor of the vaccine for Ebola. And the reason for this was that the company had invested a significant amount of time in terms of building up trust in the communities and with the government. And because of that, even though there were other vaccine options, um, they selected this company to be their main partner for um, rolling out the vaccines because in that country, a lot of the Ebola issues were a result of um, mistrust and miscommunication with people in the government and making sure to invest in that really helps to solve that problem. Um, the second is looking at uh, biofortification, which was an issue that I had worked in previously, where you're looking at um, enhancing the vitamin profile of different staple crops. And there's crops like golden rice, there's crops like um, vitamin A enriched cassava and sweet potato, and they look a little bit different. They have an orange tinge. Um, and there is sometimes a perception that it either does not look appetizing 
um, that it looks strange, so you can't trust it. Um, and also, why are we eating it when Westerners who have been in, investing in this particular um, type of food, when they're not eating it, when they're not eating it in their own countries, why are they making us eat it? So really working on the communication, and there's a lot of organizations that have been dedicated to this in terms of building up that trust and showing people how it is safe and eating it themselves and having these types of conversations, it takes a lot of time. Um, so sometimes the science and technology itself is not the solution that behavior change communications and investment in building that trust um, in these communities is really important. Well, thanks very much. You gave us quite a menu of things to think about as we look forward around how do we protect and leverage the Canada food brand and, uh, and demonstrate its sustainability or its greater trust or its reliability of supply. So thanks again for being part of our, our program today. Thank you for having me, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of these discussions. Bill, thanks for joining us at the National Forum on Agri-Food. Um, it was a great discussion this morning, and you said something that really stuck out in my mind. Quite simply, you said you had a big aha moment. What was that moment for you at Highliner Foods? So the, the big aha moment at Highliner Foods for us was really back in 1992 with the Canadian Cod Moratorium. Complete closure of the fishery that put tens of thousands of people out of work. And it, the Cod Moratorium seemed to fundamentally change the way you and your boss at the time and the company shifted its direction. What, just describe some of the, I don't know, the, the, the moments of that, of that process. Uh, what happened? So what happened uh, wasn't called sustainability back then. It was called survival. And uh, we had to very quickly reinvent our business because we no longer had the vertically integrated business that supplied the raw materials that we needed to supply our customers. So we ended up going global and sourced the same fish and many new species globally that supported our manufacturing facilities and the Highlander brands. And, when, uh, and coming out of that crisis, because it truly was uh, an existential crisis for the company and for the, and for the fishers of, uh, of Atlanta, Canada, obviously the cod, um, coming out of that, when you look back, what did you learn about sustainability? What did you learn about uh, how a company um, and its owners uh, can respond to such a crisis? So when we look back, we, we're proud to say that uh, we acted as any responsible corporate citizen would have, uh, initially out of survival mode, but more so out of protecting our, our business and future generations to come with regard to access to seafood around the world and really started our journey in sustainability shortly after 2008, after the Greenpeace report came out, and our customers started to ask us the questions about sustainability and where the products were from, how they were caught, how they were harvested, and whether or not they were certified sustainable. So it began our journey, is what it did, and we took that opportunity, thanks to Henry Damone, the foresight of Henry Damone, and put that as front and center as our business model uh, our mode of operation for three years starting in 2009 to make sure that we built it into the fabric of our business so that every employee understood that sustainability was the only way we would move this business forward in a responsible manner. It's a great story uh, and an inspiring one and I loved your passion around this is who you are and this is how you wanted to respond to this as well. 
take if we extrapolate this now to the country because we're looking at how does a country move forward like Canada and leverage what stands behind its brand and we like to think of ourselves as being a highly sustainable food supplier which includes fish and seafood uh, what can Canada learn from your experience uh, and how we can do even more we're sustainable now maybe we need to do a little bit more so, but what, what can we learn I think the biggest lesson for Canada can be to continue to think regionally but act globally and understand that as large and vast as Canada is, as strong as Canada is in food safety and quality and the maple leaf and the brands, uh, to, to really think globally about expanding and, and giving Canadian businesses an opportunity to grow. And uh, I use the captain as a perfect example. Migrating down into the United States, it's almost an invisible barrier over the years. Why is the captain a not much bigger brand in the United States versus the number one brand here in Canada? We're very proud of what we've done, our heritage, our history, and really look forward to growing it. There are some obstacles, uh, some of them regula regulatory, uh, that, that have become a hindrance to moving that brand down south. And uh, I, I see in this conference today that much of that discussion is starting to happen, looking at where those opportunities exist on a pre-competitive, on a collaborative basis that would allow that brand to move down and, and benefit Canadians. Well, it's good to hear about from you uh, about Canada's ambition. I have to ask because you raised some of the regulatory things. What, is there one in particular that you'd like to share that's, that is an irritant to you and your business? Uh, one in particular is a, a challenge to the nutrition labeling guidelines. Uh, Canada and the United States have two different regulatory guidelines that are prescribed to be used on retail packaging and food service packaging. One is not able to be transferred over the border uh, to be sold in the other country. And because of it, the economies of scale are limited. If we were able to take that same package of Highliner fish sticks and bring them down to the United States, with a nutrition labeling panel that was only printed once for all of North America, uh, the benefit would be huge. So just to be lighthearted here, fish swim across borders, but the product that's processed can't get across the borders easily. Not so easy to get okay. across the border, exactly. Bill, thank you very much for your time and for participating today. We appreciate it. David, thanks for the pleasure and honor You're to come welcome. up. Noreen, thanks very much for uh, sitting on the panel today at the National Forum on Agri-Food. You brought a message around what Ireland has done to, I think, transform your food system. Is that too strong a word, or are you on a path to that, or how would you describe that? Yeah, I think we definitely say we're on the journey towards that. So for us, uh, sustainability isn't a destination. It's, it's very much about the journey, and it's evolving all the time. So when you would have been in Ireland a number of years ago to hear about Origin Green the first time, um, perhaps what we were saying and even how we were saying it was very different to now um, and what we're finding is we re really need an agility to, to change um, the definitions and even the ambitions that we had around sustainability we have to change it based on how the world is evolving and and also because it's a learning process for us as well because a lot of what we're doing was quite innovative and there weren't we didn't have benchmarks um and now as we're collecting the data we are um adapting it as we go along so yeah it's very much a journey <laughs> so just getting to the heart of that so what was the catalyst for benchmarking uh performance across your agri-food sector 
As in why, why did we start doing it? Well, or? Essentially, yes. Why? Yeah. So who was the catalyst? Was it the producer? Uh, was it government? Was it the processor, the retailer? It who was the, the customer and the consumer primarily. Um, and really because Ireland is an export uh, nation. Um, and I guess we started hearing conversations from our customers who were obviously passing on consumer conversations um, around sustainability and around, I guess, um, the proof in the in the pudding and having having some data to back up claims that we were making and we we're starting to to hear these type of things back in 2009-2010 um, and customers starting to look for this information so I guess that was the catalyst to say well we actually have a great story um, but we don't necessarily have the data to back up what we're saying so let's start collecting that data so uh- it, and is that and is that is that data uh, and the metrics and the benchmarks that result from that is that an alignment mechanism? Is that a way to bring people to the same page? So how do you get agreement? How do you get consensus across a pretty big sector? Yeah, so I mean, to answer the latter question, it's through collaboration and a consultative process. So you know, there's a lot of talk there in the, the panel discussion about regulation. Um, so I guess we didn't go down the regulatory route um, and decided, um, I suppose, from the outset that it was going to be in the pre-competitive space. Uh, we brought Irish competitors together and also um, com- sectors that had nothing to do with each other to try and find uh, a model and benchmarks that would work across um, different industries. Um, but it wasn't, I guess, uh, technocrats that came up with it. was the industry in collaboration with science, with NGOs as well, and, and with the government. Um, so I think you know the collaboration was the the key to doing that, but afterwards the sort of unifying uh, dimension, and I think that's what every country needs um, also to back a new um, a new brand. The unifying dimension for us is the export uh, need in Ireland because we have to export 90% of our production on beef and 85% on dairy. So even the big guys on dairy in Ireland would say they see a role and a value in having that brand Ireland for for dairy and having everybody, whether you're a small dairy processor or a large dairy processor, doing the same thing. Um, And I guess like what regulation often does in a lot of countries, it, it puts it puts a baseline, whereas I guess we were maybe aiming a little higher than a baseline. Um, well, it's interesting because you, there seems to be a bit of a burning platform or was a burning platform to bring everybody together because of the importance of exports and the significance of exports. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something at the forum that I want to pick up on that's on the minds of many producers, and it's what's in it for me. Mm-hmm. Am I going to be subjected to a paper burden to, uh, to comply with all sorts of requirements and audits and so forth? How do I get a premium for my product? You answered that. It wasn't the premium for the product. What was the answer? Yeah, well, I, I guess maybe to answer the first part of it, why would you do it? It's, I suppose we see it as it's, it's a license to do business in the future. And it's, it's not so much why would you do it as why you, you wouldn't do it, um, that it will potentially become a requirement to do business in future and gives you that permission or access to the market. Um, afterwards, on the... Uh, the premiumization or the paying will consumers um, pay extra for a sustainable product um, I guess what, for starters as a government agency we don't get involved in price negotiations thankfully um, however what we do try to um, say to the farming community and what our model has shown is that greener um, sustainable practices on farm actually deliver a higher margin um, and a 
I guess coming from a country like Ireland where we're very traditional farming methods and we didn't necessarily have intensive um, farming, our farmers actually had limited access to data and didn't know how much water they used or how much energy they used or didn't have time to look at that data. And so now that we're looking at it and feeding that information back to them, there are some easy wins to a certain extent at the beginning of the journey um, uh, to to help them increase their margin without necessarily increasing the, the farm gate price. Um, because, because we're a global exporter, it's global markets that are always going to dictate that price. Well, you certainly inspired the group here today. I could tell from the, the body language of, at the forum, people were very interested. And when I visited Ireland, I enjoyed the food and drink. I hope when you're here in Canada, you can enjoy Canadian food and drink. Yeah, Thanks again, Noreen. Except for the garlic, because I'm garlic intolerant, and I didn't realize that Canada was such a big garlic <laughs> producer. So thank you, David. Thanks for being here. Interac helps Canadians access funds their way. Products like Interact Debit and Interact eTransfer have made money mobile taking it from the confines of traditional banking and ushering it into the digital age. As consumers adapt to new technology, so does Interact. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.